Welcome to the Bill Bradley Collective. We are here on a beautiful Friday night. That was weak. No, I decided I wasn't going to. I was. I feel like I've gotten too close to the Zach Lowe introduction. So I decided <laughs> to just mellow it out a little bit for now. That's fair enough. All right. So since you criticized me, Zach, I'm going to start with you first. On the never Sim- a good sign. Simpsons Dead or Alive. Simpsons that are alive. No, They're so all I, alive. I Unless they're bleeding scum Murphy no, here. Not, uh, no, uh, Maude Flanders. Um, it's surprising that Homer Simpson ever taught a class in anything. But he did teach a class in the Springfield Adult Education Center. What was it called? I don't know what it was originally called, but it turned out to be how to have a successful marriage. It was keys to a successful marriage. Yes. And when they asked him to teach it, he said, sure, anything to get out of the house. Yes, and he wore patches on his elbows and then brought the class home to have dinner with Marge. What he just, and Moe's famous line, hey, Homa, why don't you tickle her elbow a little bit? That always puts her in the mood. Yes, uh, I'm actually surprised I got that one right. That's a very underrated episode. Yes, it That's is. That's a very good episode. It's a later episode. No, season and, five. And Zach. That's season five? Yep. Don't take credit for it. You, you got it wrong. I mean, I got no, it right. No, he got it right. He got it right. Keys he got the name of the class wrong. How to teach a successful marriage how to keys to a successful <laughs> marriage. The successful marriage was the, the key issue there. <laughs> that rhymes. Right. How are you doing, Andrew? Uh, doing well. Look at this. Bill Bradley af- almost after dark. Yeah, I it's, love it. it's it's a little dark, yeah, uh, tonight, but that's fine. It's perfect. Um, <laughs> it's very it sets the mood. Bill Bradley yeah. after dark. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, right. That's on our OnlyFans page. How good was HBO Boxing after dark back in the day? Oh my Couldn't god, so many couldn't. Good beat it, and, yeah. and you know the the, the showbox, the new generation, kind of the same thing, but not as good. Not as good. Not, not as good. good. Yeah. I mean, among the the boxing HBO Boxing after dark fighters were. Mike Tyson and Floyd Mayweather. So and later, like and Oscar, Oscar De La Hoya, De La Hoya, yeah. a lot of Gotti, a sure. lot of Gotti. Yeah. So Andrew, on your favorite team, the Yankees, Aaron Judge, not only has fifty six homers at the time of recording, but is in the top five in batting average in the American League. He's mm-hmm. up to fifty. He's at fifty seven. Yeah, fifty seven. Fifty seven. Okay. Who was the last player? To hit 50 home runs and be in the top five in batting in his league. So top 50 home runs and... More than 50 home runs. Top five in batting average. Yep. In his league. And is he dead or alive? And if you need a hint, I have a pretty good one. Is he going to give it away? I mean, no. Is it like... All right. Well, well I'll, it, I'll take the hint because it's it just there's a lot of history here. So I don't know. He hit 99 home runs for the Mets, but that in the season that he hit 50 home runs. He did not play for the Mets. The Mets have never had a fifty home run hitter. So, but but he Pete, did hit. Uh, ni- didn't Pete Alonso hit fifty two a couple years ago? Maybe, yeah. Oh yeah, you're right. He did. I'd say, but they had one. But but so he played for the Mets and he hit fifty home runs elsewhere. He had ninety nine home runs for the Mets, but he hit fifty home runs elsewhere. I'll try to. Be, but it kind of ties into our main topic as well. Try to be quick here. Um, so that's Macho Man Randy Savage. Give me the league it was in, if you don't mind. National I'll take it forever. National League. You got this. Jesus, man. Um, fuck, 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 fuck. Even in the year he had 50 home runs and finished in the top five, he was not the best player on his team. I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I, I like don't want to hear the answer. I wish I had five, but we don't have five minutes. I, I, I want to think about this, but it's fine. But, but we do. We will pause. A few minutes later. <laughs> You're on. World Series winner. He was on the World Series winner, but he was not the best player on it because Joe Morgans was the best player on every team he was ever on. Cadillac Center. I would. Uh, George Foster. George Foster is no, correct, but it doesn't, doesn't count. count. No, we gave you too many hints. But is he alive or dead? Alive. So you got that part right. George Foster <laughs> is still alive. My, I'm sorry. My head was totally in like. Like late '80s, early '90s, for some reason, I couldn't get my head out of that like time frame. I like I just didn't. Yeah, it's been a long Suck. time. Yeah, I mean, it's been a long yeah. time. Uh, he did hit 99 home runs for the Mets. Yeah. He was a big free agent signing for the Mets, but he was never any good for the Mets. Like he just was never good. But Shea is a hard place to hit. Was a hard place to hit. All right, 
So, Zach, what will you be ranting about today? I'll be ranting in a lighter topic about the best MLB closure themes uh, we have both today and uh, forever. I will be ranting about not a lighter topic, the fact that the people of Jackson, Mississippi, do not have drinking water. How about you, Andrew? What are you going to be ranting about? So punishment has been levied in the case of Suns owner Robert Sarver in the toxic workplace of his Phoenix Suns. Uh, one year, ten, uh, one year suspension, ten million dollars fined. Does the punishment fit the crime? This observer says no. We'll talk about it. And the main topic today? Yeah, we alluded to it a little bit um, in the wake of minor league baseball players um, being brought into the Major League Baseball Players Association finally getting you know formal union recognition. Ed's going to kind of walk us through uh, the history of the Major League Baseball Players Union with a nod to the Kurt Floods and Marvin Millers and kind of let the, the guys that set the table for this deal and what we think is going to come of minor league players being included here. It's all next on the Bill Bradley Collective. Driving into the crossroads of sports and politics, we are the Bill Bradley Collective. Here are your hosts, Ed, Zach, and Andrew. Last November, ESPN and reporter Baxter Holmes uh, released a report, an expose really, on the Phoenix Suns' uh, workplace culture, the workplace environment, under owner Robert Sarver. Days after, in the wake of that, the NBA launched a formal investigation into Sarver and the organization. Um, the NBA's findings uh, were released this week, and punishment, if you can call it that, was doled out. Um, Robert Sarver received a one-year suspension and a $10 million fine. Now, what the ESPN report uh, alleged, found, originally, was um, just a you know as toxic as an environment as you can imagine. Sexual harassment, um, misogyny, uh, racism, a real sort of like locker room talk in a front office full of women, full of minorities, really grotesque stuff, really troubling. And the NBA report pretty much came down and was like lockstep with the original ESPN report. You can read the whole thing for yourself, but in broad strokes, here is what the investigation on the NBA found. On at least five occasions, quote, uh, Sarver repeated the N-word when recounting the statements of others. Engaged in instances of inequitable conduct toward female employees, made many sex-related comments in the workplace, made inappropriate comments about the physical appearance of female employees and other women, and on several occasions engaged in inappropriate physical conduct toward male employees. Engaged in demeaning and harsh treatment of employees, including by yelling and cursing at them. The Phoenix Suns, the NBA, multi-billion dollar organization, a multi-billion dollar league, Whatever. We've spoken at length about the toxicity of your, your old pal, Dan Snyder, Ed, and what has been going on in Washington and how he is. Is he still out on his yacht? Still kind of yeah, he's still in Congress? He, he's still and, in international waters with doing monkey knife fighting. We hold, as a podcast and as, as fans, we, I think we, we hold the NBA to a higher standard. We hold Adam Silver, commissioner, to a higher standard than we do Roger Goodell. And for this punishment of, of a year suspension, which is... A year's vacation. Essentially, yeah. $10 million to Sarver. And Sarver is known to, te- to treat nickels as fucking manhole covers. Like, this is as cheap as an NBA owner as there is. So maybe $10 million hurts him, but it really doesn't at all. Um, I got a real problem with Silver coming out and saying how you know deplorable and how grotesque we find you know these findings were. But also to, to say, but uh, it's not enough for us to uh, take the team away from him. You already have in the wake uh, in the wake of this. You have uh, the Suns minority owner has said that unless Sarver sells the team, I'm out. He's not. I'm out. You have uh, PayPal is the company that sponsors the Suns jerseys, and their CEO says that on when it comes time for us to. I guess this is the last year of their contract and like um, adorning the jerseys with their logo. So listen, next bout of negotiations, unless Sarver's out, we're not. You will not see our our logo on these jerseys. Um, Am I shocked? Kind of. Um, do I think he is eventually going to have to exit stage left? I'm optimistic that's going to be the case. I think there's been enough of a fallout to this inadequate punishment 
where I'm optimistic that perhaps he might not make it through this. I just wish it didn't take this long to kind of happen. What are your thoughts? I just did a quick Google search of Robert Sarver's net worth. It's $800 million. $10 million to him is like when we give a homeless guy a buck on the street. Like, that's the equivalent of $10 million to $800 million. He's not going to miss it. It's pocket change. It's what he carries around in his pocket every day. Um, but I think we hold the NBA to a higher standard because we've seen the NBA discipline these types of actions to a higher standard than we haven't than we have ever seen with any other organization. Um, you know, the difference between this and Donald Sterling, this is worse than Donald Sterling. And Donald Sterling had to f- sell his team. You know, he was forced to, this is worse. He made his workplace worse. He wasn't caught on tape talking to his mistress, dropping the N-bomb a couple times. He was saying the N-bomb in workplace settings, in meetings. So, like, I, th- but I disagree with you that I think he's going to exit stage left. Unless the commissioner says it's time for him to go, he's not going anywhere. I think he will because I I think that with the sponsors bailing and the minority owners bailing, he doesn't he can't afford to own the entire team. Like he, he just doesn't really have that amount of money. I think I mentioned uh, at another podcast. I mean, just about how deeply disappointing Adam Silver has become. That he got all kind of credit for the Sterling thing, but he had no choice. Because the players weren't going to play. Yeah. Right? I mean, that was the players who made this this decision. Not anybody else. It was the players that said on Sterling, we're not playing for this guy. I would like to see them do that with Sarver. Chris Paul was pretty strong in his criticism. Yes, so was LeBron. And so was LeBron. And, you know, in standing up for, for women, and I do think he's going to go, but this punishment is clearly inadequate. And the disproportion to their findings to what they decided to do is very similar to the Deshaun Watson issue. It's like, yes, everything they say is true, and we're going to do almost nothing to correct it. And To quote Ned Flanders' parents, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. <laughs> that is correct. I am going to move to a topic that I have wanted to talk about for a while, uh, but I, I, I don't think we can let it go without speaking of it. And that's Jackson, Mississippi, and the water crisis there. There was some flooding in, in the Mississippi River, and the water pressure dropped to almost nothing. And people did not have running water in Jackson, Mississippi, for a very long time. Jackson is the largest city in Mississippi. It's the capital. Right. It is the capital of Mississippi. It is also almost entirely black. And this has been a problem that has gone on forever. Uh, and although the water pressure is mostly back now, and I mean in the last week, their mayor, Chakwe Lumbumba, uh, and, and I'm, I might have screwed that up and I apologize, said, as I have always warned, even when the pressure is restored, even when we're not under a boil water notice, it's not a matter of if these systems will fail, but when these systems will fail. Why is that true? Well, among other things, the Mississippi legislature, which is all white and Republican, when they have a very liberal black Democratic mayor in Jackson, has this uh, past April withheld $42 million intended for the city water, man- man- city water management infrastructure and singled out the city for extra oversight of the funds it did get, which uh, uh, said, Lumbumba said was, that I, that's not right either. The mayor said was racist and paternalistic. I don't think it is difficult. I think it's very difficult to maintain that that's not true. And this is not new. In 1970, there had to be a, a boycott and a strike because they did not have running water. In this case, uh, the governor, Tate Reeves, said we have, they have to realize water is not free and, and had a plan to privatize it. They are still under a boiled water restriction there. And just when you say to yourself, how, how could this get worse? And I just want to point out, we had stories this week of all of the south, most southern Republican governors. I forget what Ducey did. It was terrible in Arizona. 
Abbott sent uh, busloads of uh, immigrants. So did uh, uh, migrants to uh, Kamala Harris's home. DeSantis, DeSantis took Hyannis. illegal aliens, what he called illegal, what he calls illegal aliens, undocumented people, and sent them to Martha's Vineyard. But of course, they don't really have that problem. There's no border there that they can get to. So they went to Texas to pe- pick these people up. We told them that they were going to uh, expedite their um, expedite their their uh, you know naturalization papers. Landed the plane in Florida and then took off right away so they could say it came from Florida. But Tate Reeves is as bad as any. Today, he spoke to a group of people and said, it is a great day to be in Hattiesburg. It is also, as always, a great day not to be in Jackson. And everyone laughed because he is making fun of the citizens of his own state who live in the capital, but because they're black, he thinks it's funny that they don't have water. Yeah, I mean, we said this about Flint. When remember when Flint had a water crisis for like, uh, uh, like still the, is till today, yeah, still is having a water crisis. Now Jackson's having a water crisis. The climate change, the infrastructure lack of investment we've had is not going to infect white people. It's going to infect the cities. It's going to infect the urban centers, which is where, due to redlining and due to historic just segregation where a lot of minorities live. If this was happening in Greenwich, Connecticut, there would be the National Guard in Connecticut making sure people had bottled water. Um, This is also what capitalism breeds. Like, you want to know why you don't have water? You want to know why somebody thinks water isn't free? Water, a natural human right? Water which comes from the sky to fill our reservoirs which we then use to then give water to the people. It's free. It's nature. It's capitalism. It's because they. It's the same thing Nestle is doing in South America, where they're saying it costs you money to buy this water now. Now, it costs, water is no longer a guarantee. You must pay for it. Clean water is no longer a guarantee. It's a privilege, not a right. And. We're going to continue to see this as climate change gets worse and worse and as our lack of infrastructure investment gets worse and worse. The more we leave up the states to fund projects, the more this is going to happen. Because, yeah, in Connecticut, the money's going to get to Hartford. The money's going to get to Bridgeport. The money's going to get to New London and Waterbury and Stamford and all the second-level cities. But in Jackson, Mississippi where you have a conservative legislature, a racist legislature, a conservative governor, a clearly a racist, racist governor, governor the, that money's not going to get to them. That money's going to the rural communities that are all white that don't need $42 million. It's kind of a pittance compared to the $42 million, but while we're on the topic of Mississippi, uh, Brett Favre and the Mississippi government somehow, and, and, somehow and getting $5 million so they could upgrade the volleyball facilities at the University uh, of Southern Miss for Favre's daughter. And that was, it, and the governor was involved in that too. Much involved in that. Um, and there's this, you know, that, where, where did that $5 million, that was, was that not like emergency relief fund that it came was, out it of was, like. It was COVID funds for, COVID funds? that was, that were designed for underprivileged areas. Mm. Underprivileged, AKA minority, AKA. AKA um, not, not Brett Favre's daughter. Yeah. Terrible. So as you can tell from our first two rants, it's been kind of a dark week in uh, sports and politics, uh, as most weeks are, since we are in uh, the last or the beginning of the last stages of our empire collapsing the way Britons did when India gained independence. So I wanted to focus on something a little lighter, something that we can all kind of enjoy, which is uh, the entrance theme songs for closers in Major League Baseball. Now, I've kind of fallen into a hole uh, of this due to Edwin Diaz, uh, the New York Mets closer, who brings out the horns every night. It's so great. And uh, one of the best things about his entrance has been the production value that SNY has put into it uh, to make it really kind of an event, and it really electrifies the stadium. But what I wanted to first get into was that entrance songs – uh, we're not actually a thing in baseball uh, up until really the 90s when the Seattle Mariners started piping music through their new stadium. What is it, Kaufman? 
No, Kauffman's in Kansas the City. The Mariners' uh, Safeco Field? Safeco Field. Thank you. Safeco Field. But the first entrance song uh, that was done before then, pre-1990s, was actually done by the New York Yankees in 1972 for Sparky Lyle. Uh, As he was entering the stadium, uh, the organist decided to play Pomp and Circumstance, otherwise known as the graduation song. And he had this song up until 19— Well, the reason why he had to play this song was because the Yankees had introduced— uh, the ball, the bullpen cart, which was a baseball that would take players from the bullpen to the mound. So nobody ever knew who was coming in the game until they were announced. So this was a way of letting them know, hey, Sparky Lyle, you're closer. A closer before closers were closers. Because uh, that didn't become a thing really until the 80s. Uh, that he was coming into the game. Now, Sparky had this song up until 1974. Uh, where he asked the organist uh, to stop playing it. He thought that it put a little too much pressure on him. He he didn't really enjoy that. But the song resurfaced in 1985 uh, due to a minor league baseball catcher uh, who played about 300 games uh, for the St. Louis Cardinals minor league organization before he wanted to go into the family business. And that family business was pro wrestling. And that was when, in 1985, uh, one Randall Mario Paffa, Saint, former St. Louis Cardinals catcher, uh, became famously known as Macho Man Randy Savage, and he used Pomp and Circumstance uh, as his entrance song, as his theme, which became famous uh, throughout his whole career. But I wanted to give a little background, uh, perhaps in a little dollop style, but a little background to my rant. Uh, I was just going to say this sounds like a dollop, not a rant. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a little, you know, like it's this. it's been a long week. It's been a dark week. You know, we can lighten it up a little bit in the last rant of the day. Uh, but I wanted to talk about what you guys think is the best closer theme song of all time. I mean, I think there's you, only one. I think you look. Hold on. I think you look. You know, in this in the somebody 80, had in the eighties, right? Eckersley Eckersley had "Bad to the Bone" by George Thurgood. Mm-hmm. So did Goose Gossage. Uh, Jonathan Papelbon, dominating closer for the Red Sox, had stripping up to Boston by the Dropkick mm-hmm. Murphys. Uh, my one of my personal favorites, uh, Atlanta Braves closer John Smoltz had "Dancing Queen" by ABBA <laughs> as his theme song. Uh, Edwin Diaz this year has uh, really just electrified the stadium with his theme song of "Narco" by Timmy Trumpet and Black Tracks. Uh, we also had, of course, perennial favorites in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, perhaps two of the greatest closers of all time. We had Hell's Bells for Trevor Hoffman, and we had Mariano Rivera for Enter Sandman. I do kind of have a thesis here that I think in the 80s, 70s, 80s, having batted the bone for Eckersley, caught kind of this cultural milieu that was happening. Then in 2005, 2006, when Papelbon is shipping up to Boston, he kind of caught that Boston angst, that Scorsese drive of, you know, you're not going to tell us what to do. Then we had, you know, Edwin Diaz now in the late 2022 playing basically a club song and just getting a whole bunch of people dancing, uh, including Timmy Trumpet, who came out and played the entrance theme song (laughs) last week in the coolest video of the year. Uh, But... In that you have Hell's Bells and Enter Sandman in the late 90s, early 2000s, when there was that great, it was the grunge era. You know, these guys came out, they punched you in the face. You know, Hell's Bells, you have the bells going off. Enter Sandman, you have the guitar riff going off. It kind of hits you right in the face. It puts fear into the opposing team. Uh, what do you guys think? I mean, one, do we love closer, closer entrances? And two, what is the best closer entrance? I mean, obviously, the one that I'm most well connected to would be Rivera, Enter Sandman. And, like, in the moment, living his career and living that song where, like, they always would show the entrance. A lot of times, it used to, normally when teams go to the bullpen, you cut away to commercial. Yeah. When the closer comes in and you get that song, that anthem, they don't go to commercial. They, you get the jog in, you get the first couple of pitches, and then maybe they'll take a break. But you get those, get the song. And I, lo- I, I like Metallica. Enter Sandman's a great song. In retrospect of, like, Rivera's career and what, like, I've learned about him later as a person is that he's just, like, this incredibly God-fearing, 
uh, just straight laced, very kind of actually almost like uh, not almost. He's a he's a like a he's he like ha- an ev- evangelical Christian. Is he what, hated is, is the what song. He, is. he hated the song. He hated it. Uh, his crosstown at the time, the Mets had Billy Wagner, who was a top closer, and Wagner's song in Houston was actually Enter Sandman as well. So he comes to right. New York and he uses it there. And the next day, the tabloids and Mike and the Mad Dog are all up in arms. Like, you can't come here and take Moe's song. And it's like, well, he's been using it for, like, just as long in Houston. And he's also somebody that I believe could actually listen to Metallica. That could go to a Metallica concert that probably listens to Metallica in the clubhouse, whatever. Obviously, I was so connected to that. But uh, Hoffman, Hell's Bells. Hell's Bells, you, you get the, 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 the bells, dong. the dong, dong. Let's see what you want about ACDC. You know. Simple music, but it's simple music. Played well, played loud, and I, I, I always had a kinship to that as well. Hell's Bells, Hoffman. Um, I just yeah, think that's. I think it's just a great uh, song to enter a game to. I mean, right? I, I, I did not know for a fact that Rivera hated the song, but I would have bet my life on it. Yeah. Um, but Hell's Bells is the answer, right? Hell, I mean, uh, because first of all, you know, Trevor Hoffman really enjoyed that. He probably had an ACDC shirt, you know, Beavis and Butthead yeah. style under his fucking Padres right. jersey, you know? Like, I buy it. I believe that he likes it. I do remember I do remember the Sparky Lyle. Uh, that was quite a year uh, because he went from the Red Sox to the Yankees. For Dan Carter. Oh, he did Danny Cater. Danny Cater. Danny Cater, yeah. Ed got it right. You got it wrong. Sparky, I'm pretty, sure I, got, I'm pretty sure I got it right. But it, you, know, well, you, you know who it was. I, I didn't, yeah. Sparky's the first. I think he's Sparky's the first like non-starter to win a Cy Young. Is he not? Yes, he is. Uh, right. Yes, he is. Uh, did Elroy f- did uh, in sixty? Uh oh. In nineteen sixty, there was a relief pitcher that won eighteen and one for the Pirates. I think it's Elroy Face. Uh, but but it might have been him. We'll look it up on the break. Right. Yeah. Report back. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think my favorite uh has to be Hell's Bells by Trevor Hoffman. Um, unanimous. I love it. He, I mean, the dongs. Plus, I love ACDC. I love ACDC it, it, so I'm much. I'm really surprised it, to hear that, and I'm really happy to hear that. That's it, awesome. It, it hurts me to not pick Koji Uihara's uh, Enter Sandman theme song. Uh, the great Red Sox reliever for... Oh, oh, World Champion 2013 was a yeah, huge part of that World Two years, team. right? But he was on the brief, for like two yeah, years. But he was good in his brief window. Uh, but in honor... Of one Randall Mario Papa, a.k.a. the Macho Man Randy Savage, we'll be talking about the recent news in minor league baseball unionization and how that interacts with the major leagues. After this break, we'll be back on the Bill Bradley Collective. Hey, how y'all doing? I'm President Bubba, and I'm fixing government. What's that mean to you? Big savings. (laughs) Yep. Every stupid thing the government ever bought and never used is going to be sold below cost. Way below cost. Why? Because you won't believe what we paid for it in the first place. Bring in the first item, Tipper. Look at here. It's a combination airplane speedboat that our U.S. Marines swore up and down. They just couldn't do it out. Never been used. Price tag says $27 billion. It's yours for $1.29. And here's another government surplus item that looked real good on paper back when we thought we had the money to pay for it. Solid platinum toilet seat. Use them in the home. Use them in the office. Heck, hang one from your neck and start a rap group for all I care. <laughs> Get them three for a quarter while the incredible supplies last. You cannot afford to miss President Bubba's government surplus sale. Where else can you pay so little for something you already paid way too much for? So welcome back. So we're going to be talking about the Major League Baseball Players Association, a union that we do not talk about much on this show. It's not um, really a union. Well, I mean, it's a. I mean, they just finished one of the great organizing drives in the history of of the of the of country. Of the country, right? Yes. Yeah, that's a great organizing I'm part drive. With the Starbucks workers, and we're going to talk about we're going to talk about that a little bit. But this 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 had become the most powerful union in the country, and how did that start? Well. I would argue it started because they hired Marvin Miller, who was the chief economist and negotiator for the United Steelworkers. Who we've covered in a dollop. Correct? Well, we... I think we... I don't think we did his life. I think we just mentioned him. Last year, we did... um, We did an episode about 
the '94 strike, I think specifically. The '94 strike, yeah. Did like a right. history, um, right? So we did, and Miller was a part of that conversation, right? Right, right, right. right. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, he negotiates the first CBA, collective bargaining agreement, in 1968, 69. All right, short document, 43 percent increase in the minimum salary from seven thousand to ten thousand. Larger expense allowances. The next CBA he signs in seventy. It builds on the, that uh, deal. And the key issue, for the first time, owner-player disputes that did not involve the, quote-unquote, integrity of baseball were not decided by the commissioner, but were decided by an independent uh, independent panel of arbitrators. Normally what that happens is uh, in a three-panel group. Well, Zach, you you can explain a three-panel group. In a tripartite, which is what they call a tripartite arbitration panel, you have uh, one person who's there to represent management, one person who's there to represent labor, and that one person who's neutral. Uh, so basically, you do have a single arbitrator, but within the arbitration, you have people that can influence the neutral arbitrator on both sides. You have basically people acting as agents of the negotiation on your behalf. Right, but uh, but you also obviously make your own arguments. You make your own, Yeah, you make your own arguments, right. but you have... These people that can then make your arguments again in a second setting. So one of the things that Marvin Miller did, although he did warn Kurt Flood about this, is he took Kurt Flood, who was traded from the Cardinals to the Phillies uh, in 1969, uh, because he would not, he would, uh, he demanded a raise. He was making 90000 he wanted 100000 Do you remember, do you know much about Kurt Flood as a baseball player? A little bit, yeah. So talk a little bit about Kurt Flood. Um, center fielder, correct? Correct. Uh, on some really... Gold glove center on fielder. On some pretty terrific St. Louis Cardinals teams in the 1960s. Teams that went to multiple World Series. I won at least, they won in 65, they won in 67. Uh, Flood, and they lost in 68. Yep. Yeah, and Flood was, yep, Detroit. And Flood was a huge, a huge part of... of you know, maybe not a dynasty, but a, <clears throat> a pretty a pretty dominant team in its era. Um, hit for high average, not not a not a not a power hitter, not but not a power to running stretch. But he, he's the kind of he was the kind of leadoff hitter that did not survive the Bill James Renaissance because he was low low on base. Yeah, because like, he, he'd hit two ninety, but his on base percentage would be three oh six, and he was fast, but he get caught stealing a lot. So that like he, but. As a defensive player, mm-hmm. he and Paul Blair were viewed as equals, and Paul Blair is often viewed as the greatest defensive mm-hmm. player ever mm-hmm. uh, since Mays. So mm-hmm. because there's a contract fight, he gets traded to the Phil- – they trade him to the Phillies. I cannot express how bad the Phillies were in the late 60s, early 70s, and the fan base – was so virulently racist that Dick Allen, the best player of the decade for the Phillies, not the greatest guy in the world, but the greatest player in in that decade of the 60s, early 70s, just refused to play for them anymore. I'm not playing. So he traded him even up. And Flood refused to go. He said, I am not property. Miller tells him, look, you're going to lose this lawsuit like you can't win because of the reserve clause and, and you know what the reserve, you get to explain the reserve clause Andrew yeah I mean this is and we're going to get into this but this is there's no free agency is not a thing um, the team that drafts you the team that you're on uh, even when your contract expires you are you're, you're bound to that team that team has uh, basically your rights they, they have control over you yeah, throwing back to an old dollop we've done. Uh, that's why the federal league started. Well, and the play and the players and the league. players league. Yeah, right. We did one on the players league, and 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 right the reserve clause, which exists because of antitrust exemption, and um, so the reserve clause finally buckles and breaks first in seventy four and then in seventy five. In seventy four, how do Oh, Flood gets to the. Does it get to the Supreme Court? What does he yes, get? he loses five three to one in the Supreme and he Court. Loses, he's, the commissioner of baseball is Bowie Kuhn. Yes, he sues Bowie Kuhn. Uh, Bowie Kuhn, very bad guy. Yes, uh, <laughs> as, as we'll discuss later on. And by the way, while this is going on, there's still a negotiating contracts. He gets uh, Marvin Miller gets 
$500,000 increases in the pension funds. There's all the salaries because they had a 13-day strike. The uh, owners refused to let the players make up the games because they don't want to pay them, which is really the major league owners of that time frame could not get out of their own way. Like, they just couldn't get out of their own way. There was nothing they could do to, to get out of their way. But the first hit on the reserve clause is when Charlie Finley, the owner of the Oakland A's, refuses to make an annual payment, as was required, um, to Catfish Hunter. Just refuses to make the payment, even though it's in the contract. Catfish Hunter had just won the Cy Young. He goes to court. They say, you have violated the contract. And Catfish Hunter is a free agent. And he goes for making, I think it was $120,000 a year, and instead signs a $3.5 million a year bonus, I mean a contract, with the Yankees. You have Catfish Hunter, who coming off a of Cy Young, and also Finley is the owner. The team had just won three straight World Series titles. You imagine, like, in today's world of, like, a team winning three straight and just letting a player, having that kind of a situation, and, and not that, just the idea of letting the ace on this, like, dynasty just, like, yeah. Not because he wanted to make more he, money, because yeah, he had a contract, yeah. but because you refused to pay him the money you knew you owed him. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it strikes me as odd that you would not pay, like, we always hear conservatives talk about this, about, like, the sanctity of contracts, and it's like, yeah, the, yes, yeah. on labor we agree. Yeah, you live like up to the the sanctity of the contract. You would like not, you signed it. It takes two people to sign it. Right. So you live up to your end. Right. And, and and this is why you and I, Zach, have have been disgusted by James Harden and, and players yes. who just say, "Well, I'm not going to play." For, I know I signed the contract. But I'm not going to do it anymore. You know, Kevin Durant, to his credit, said, "I don't want to play here anymore." And they said, "Well, you have to." He said, "Okay." So yeah. there is that. So, seventy four, Dave McNally. Uh, who was a pitcher for the Orioles, and Andy Messersmith, who was a pitcher for the Dodgers, also coming off, I think, a side, uh, I think he won the National League Cy Young, had fulfilled their contract and said, we don't have a contract. We can go where we want. And it's called the Seltz decision. It was in, it was in um, Supre- uh, Superior Court. did not get to the Supreme Court. And it declared that both players had, had fulfilled their contractual obligations and had no further legal ties to the ball club. By the way, correct me if I'm wrong. Contractual law is like in our constitution. I believe so. Yeah, it's certainly covered. It's yeah, like it's kind and of. And it's like, not even in the Fourteenth Amendment, so it matters. It, yeah, it, <laughs> yes, heaven forbid it's in the Fourteenth Amendment. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure, like, if you make a contract with somebody, that's like constitutionally guaranteed. So what? Right. So one of the things. So the self decision said, yeah, they they fulfilled their contract. Andy McNally signs uh, with the Expos. And in one of and McNally had won twenty games like seven years in a row. In one of the weirdest outcomes, gets such a bad case of the hiccups, he has to retire. He can't get rid of the hiccups for years, so he has to retire. Messer Smith goes to Atlanta, and we forget how terrible Ted Turner was as a billionaire because so many worse billionaires have followed him. But yes. Ted Turner was terrible, and Andy Mes- he changed his Messersmith's number to 17. I think it had been 15 in L.A. And then he claimed his nickname was Channel, and he put his nickname on the back. It was a Channel 17, which happened to be the channel number of TBS everywhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Bowie Q said, no, you cannot do that. Um, but what Miller does, it's really interesting, because he's an economist. Miller insists on all these restrictions on free agency. Charlie Finley wanted no restrictions because what Miller realized is that what drives the salaries up is the rarity of this. And if everyone was free every year, it wouldn't matter. Like it would be like your fantasy football draft. You can get anybody, you know, I'll wait on pitcher. I'll wait on, like, you know, it, yeah. it, it, it would have been, at some point, the market just dries up. So that, but at this moment, it is the most powerful union, Major League Baseball union, it's the most powerful union on the planet. They had multiple strikes. They always, the owners either caved or in 85, 86, 
they engaged in collusion. What was the collusion? So the owners did not like free agency, except for the free agents they signed, which they love. But but the owners were upset that the other owners also didn't show any self-discipline and signed all these guys to contracts. So in the summer after the uh, before the 85 season, or after the 85 season, there were a series of um, big free agents. Kirk Gibson, Tommy John, Phil Negro, Carlton Fisk. None of them were offered contracts. They're not offered contracts. All right. Uh, the Major League Baseball Pl- uh, Players Association filed a grievance, which became known later as Collusion 1. In the next year, after the 86 season, Jack Morris, Cy Young winner, Tim Raines, the second greatest leadoff hitter who ever lived, Ron Guidry, a great uh, left-handed pitcher for the Yankees, Rich Gedman, a mediocre, well, a decent catcher, but also Bob Boone, Doyle Alexander. Nobody is signed. Salaries after the 86-year season go down. The first time since the start of free agency that salaries get lower. They bring agreements in front of the uh, of Tom Roberts, an arbitrator who ruled the owners had violated the CBA by conspiring to restrict player movement. In the next year, Hall of Famer Paul Molitor, Jack Clark, 200-game winner Dennis Martinez are not offered off contracts. They were not subtle. They turned out having a database. They, f- they proved that the owners had a database about which contracts were going to be offered, that they had a limit on what, how much they were going to offer each player. And when the players demanded more than the limit, they, wouldn't, they just stopped. This is like if you ever read the book, the movie's good too, but if you ever read the book The Informant, which is an amazing book about uh, Archer Dander Midland, their statement, their, you know, their saying was, our competitors are our friends, our customers are our enemies. That was it because the competitors would agree, just hold the prices. So this ends up costing the owners $280 million in fines. It's a what? lot of money in 80, 88. 88. 88. Yeah, $280 million. It's like, that's got to be a billion now. Faye Vincent, not in the Hall of Fame, but should be, told the owners in a meeting, the single biggest reality you guys have to face up to is collusion. You stole $280 million from the players, and the players are unified to a man around the issue because you got caught, and many of you are still involved. You know who's never talked to owners like that? Roger Goodell. No. Or Adam Silver. Like, that is, they, of course, replaced him with another owner. Um, so that was $280 million. What did we get out of that? The Tampa Bay Rays, the, the Florida Marlins, the Arizona Diamondbacks, and, Colorado and the Colorado Rockies. Yeah. Because how did they raise the money? They just got in four teams, and, and those guys paid it. It's 2 and 95 2 and 99 Right. Yeah. And because that because the payments come much later. Like the payments are much later. So at this moment, this is the most powerful union in the world, right, Zach? Well, yeah. You, I mean, at this point, the Players Association was like the big kid in the playground. You know, no other sports organization had this level of uh, influence over management. And there was probably no other union at that point, building trades, AFSME, AFT, that had the, that could claim they had the same influence over management that the Players Association had at this time. Maybe UFT? May, maybe. But probably not. Um, not with this amount of money. The explosion over the course of the 90s of, of, of players' salaries just year over year over year. The, the, you know, by, by the end of the 90s, we've got... You know, Kevin Brown is a hundred million dollar pitcher. Kevin Brown in the, at the end of the nineteen nineties. Yeah. I mean, like, but you know, what, 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 Clemens? Clemens is uh, signs an exorbitant deal with the Red Sox in the early nineties. Right. Um, that that just sets they, new benchmarks being set every year. Um, the players are just getting more and more handsomely paid, and so the other they, sports, it's not happening in other sports commensurately. Right. So major league I mean, baseball, ba- though. Ba- baseball salaries 
are still kind of out of whack. For the for the, for well, the, for the, no. for the top, you know, for, for the top. What is what it's become is it's become a stars and scrubs league. Yeah. yeah. And why is that? Because in 2002, even though there is no salary cap in baseball, in 2002, they agreed to a sliding scale competitive balance tax with a threshold in 2003 at, at starting at $117 million. And the first time over the threshold, you have to pay 17.5% of the value of, of, of the contracts over that, and then it goes up. And suddenly, that tax becomes so prohibitive that even the Yankees start thinking about, uh, do we want to really spend that much money? And you might notice, how many championships have the Yankees won since 2003? I think it's one. It's one. It and is the, one, in right. The, in the last offseason they really spent was the, was the year before that 09 World Series. Was right. The 08 offseason, Sabathia and Teixeira and Burnett. And since then, since since George passed, the Suns are terrified of these tax thresholds. Terrified of paying the tax going over. Red Sox aren't. The Sun, I should say. Well, but even the Red Sox, the Red Sox let Mookie Betts go. They've gotten cheap because they're more interested in Liverpool. They're more interested in putting a team in... uh, they're trying to get a Seattle team, right? I, mean, I will say my, yeah. my team that I root for, the Mets, uh, do not care at all. Steve Cohen does not give a... St- Steve Cohen does not care about this luxury tax. He will just simply... What's their... Their payroll's like 245 right it's, now? It's, it's bigger than that. Sorry, yeah, it's that. it's absurd. It's, yeah. And and so, I mean, we see in the NBA that the, the luxury tax... The luxury tax more than the salary cap. Suppresses salaries. Yeah. Because it's a soft cap. You can get around it. In the NFL, it's 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 the, the cap that gets you. But the NFL is different from every other league because the TV money is split evenly. No team has their own TV deal. In the NBA, they do, but it's secondary. In baseball, it's all, all the... Um, Local TV revenue. SNY for the Mets, uh, and, and Nesson t- for the Red Sox. If you can own yes, your own network, uh, yes you're for done. the Yankees. So what's happened is salaries in baseball have, for the majority of players, stagnated or, or fallen. That that baseball is becoming stars and scrubs. That, like some guys make $200 million a year, or, you know, not two hundred million, but they make huge amounts. Thirty-five, million 35, a year. 40 yeah, million a year, a year. and they, they have, have guarantees mil- of three hundred million plus. Right, right. They have the guaranteed contracts of three hundred million dollars plus. Bryce Harper does a lot. Yeah. Mike and, Trout, Mike Trout, but Manny, then everybody Manny else, Machado and Bryce right, Harper, right. And, yeah. but then everybody else doesn't. Like everybody yeah. else, their salaries are in actual dollars lower than they would have been twenty years ago. Do you think, and this is where we're going to end because it's where we started. As a union, as a union, because the Baseball Players Association has lost a lot of power. As a union, will the minor league deal build their power? I think, first off, the minor league deal is a massive win for minor league baseball players. On some level, there's they should be disconnected about what is good for Major League Baseball players versus what is good for minor league baseball players. You're in two different worlds. You're in two different economic standings. You know, this is a major win for minor league baseball players. But do I think it hurts Major League Baseball? I mean, yeah, of course owners are going to say, well, we have less money to pay you now. Like, of, of that, yeah, that that's what they're going to say. And in small market teams like Florida – or Tampa, or, I mean, is Kansas City still, still a small market team? Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Kansas City's bottom, bottom five. Kansas City's payroll is like $75 million it's, or something. It's lower. Uh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's, it's low. like right around like $60, yeah. $75 million. Mm-hmm. Like, for them, like, it, that may be true. The Pittsburgh Pirates, $35, $40 million yeah, payroll. That, like, that I mean. may be true for them. Um, but for like the Yankees and Red Sox and Dodgers and Padres and Mets, like, no, they can pay them whatever they can pay anybody, whatever the hell they want. They've got the money. The owners of the Red Sox also own 
what, Leicester City or Man U or... Well, yeah, I mean, the Red Sox obviously are involved in Liverpool. Liverpool, thank you. Um, yeah. yeah. Man- Manchester United's owned by, owned by the... Um, the Glazers. Of, the Glazers, uh, The Tampa yeah. Buccaneers. Yeah. So, like, yeah, these guys can pay the salaries. Um, will they is a whole different animal. There was some thought that, in, in reaction to the, um, this, you know, the minor leaguers falling under the MLPPA umbrella, almost like in the, the student loan forgiveness debate, that there was going to be pushback from people that had paid off their student loans of like, well, I had to struggle. I paid off my loans, so you should have to do the same thing. And, and there was some thought that some veteran players that kind of grinded their way through the minor leagues and finally got to the, you know, the bigs and made a comfortable living, that they would have the same kind of pushback. And I have not heard one person, at least on the record, on or off the record, I've not heard one established player come out with that take. And maybe it'll come, but I haven't heard it yet. Um, I think, and that's that to me is encouraging. I think what we need is like a Mike Trout to come out in favor of the minor league baseball deal. Like nobody in baseball, I haven't seen any baseball players really talk about this. Like, who is the leader of the MLBPA right now? Well, it's uh, as a player who's like the player. I mean, Tony Clark, yeah, runs it. Ex, but like, no, I'm, ta- I'm, I'm talking about, I'm talking about like teams, players. Yeah. Like, um, I know Scherzer was one. Yeah. Um, Garrett, like, I know Garrett Cole's the Yankees. Garrett Cole negotiations. But like, um, let's see these. Like Garrett Cole come out Matt, and publicly say, and say minor league know. baseball players unionized is good for the sport. Well, I'm sure, and I, I would imagine Clark took it up with these guys. Took it up with like the high profile, te- you know, player reps from each team. And I'm sure if there was pushback, then we would have heard about it. Um, I just haven't. Heard, I haven't heard any kind of pushback, which I think is. I mean. No noise is good noise, uh, I, and in that case, I would say. I mean, in general, the number of player, the number of people you have in your union builds power. I, mm. I think w- what is impressive is a union that seemed to have lost its mojo did something that no other league do- has done, which is expanded their portfolio, if you will. I hate to give the devil his due. Um, you know, Rob Manfred comes from. Um, labor law, if I'm not mistaken, that's his, yep. that's his background. The fact that he was that he came to that he came to the table and, and you know accepted this that that you know good on him. What's Zach? We usually points given where points earned. Points given when points earned. So with that, we will say good night on the Bill Bradley Collective. As always, we thank you for joining us here. And if you like today's episode, smash that subscribe button, leave us a review. Let's help grow the collective brand. We'll see you all next week on the Bill Bradley Collective.